What would you give to increase sales by 8% of your restaurant? Restaurants leveraging the power of Yelp Guest Manager paired with Yelp ads enjoy up to an 8% monthly lift in diner bookings through Yelp. It makes sense, right? Millions of people use Yelp every day to find restaurants, and they're using that same trusted platform to book reservations and add themselves to wait lists. Your restaurant could be busier today. To learn more, visit restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast or call 877-571-9357 and quote podcast. Yelp Internal Data 2021. Based on average results from a sample study of restaurants with guest manager that purchased Yelp ads between April and July 2021 in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and New York City. Results may vary. Now here we go. Usually the money's there. It's not the money. You think it's the money, but it's not the money. You're spending the money on the wrong things or the wrong people. The money is almost always there. As a matter of fact, we've never been in an engagement where we didn't make or save our client multiple X what they spent on us as an investment. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. Those that can't do, teach. That's the logic, right? I suspect that we'll prove that wrong today. Our guest is Troy Hooper, a restaurant coaching consultant who's put his money where his mouth is and created eight different restaurant concepts all under one roof. In today's episode, Troy shares the blueprint he's used to scale countless restaurant concepts as well as grow his own. Well, yeah, my non-traditional, non-institutional education came by being raised in a nightclub, in a restaurant, and on the floor of a construction site of both, as my father was a multi-business entrepreneur focused in construction and design and development. It really caused me to be interested in becoming a chef. So institutional real education as I went to Johnson and Wales and got my culinary certificate. I went to Florida International University and got a business degree and a variety of other certifications, certificates, and professional trainings from employers and things like that. But life itself has been a tremendous institution of education. Construction and hospitality. It's such an interesting pairing. When I built out my fine dining restaurant in downtown Los Angeles, we used one of the preeminent restaurant contractors in Los Angeles. And I so vividly remember, like I was doing a bunch of planning and financial forecasting and stuff like that up in the area where the office would be upstairs. And it was like 1130 at night. We weren't opening for like six months. And I walked down out of the restaurant and I walk around the corner and I see the contractor's truck and I see him sleeping in his truck. Yeah. And the only reason I shared is because, I mean, you come out of two industries that are dog shit when it comes to work-life balance. Yeah. How did, how did Love that- for end? punishment. <laughs> right. Absolutely. How did that inform your trajectory? And not in terms of the career that you chose, but in terms of how you saw work-life balance as it relates to your career. Yeah. Until I was about 32 years old, my life mantra was work hard, play harder. 
you know, I grew up, my father worked six or seven days a week, easily 16 hours a day. But when the day was over and he went to the bar, he had a hell of a lot of fun. He really enjoyed entertaining. And that's where the the chef thing came from. I thought I wanted to cook for other people. It didn't take me very long after about two years after culinary school to decide <laughs> I did not want to cook for other people because I cooked all through. I worked and cooked all through culinary school. So it's just about coming at it initially until I hit my 30s. There was no such thing as work-life balance. Work was life. Life was in balance when you loved what you did for work. And then, yeah, as you get a little older, you start to sort of take a little stock and want to do some things that aren't necessarily work-related when you aren't at work. When you look at your dad's career, when you look at everything that you learned from the amazing companies that you worked for and with, I would think that a blueprint would appear over time, right, of what a successful company looks like, what a successful entrepreneur looks like. Can you describe that for me? Yeah, I mean, as much as... My dad loved math and I hated math. It comes down at the end of the day, if the math doesn't work, you've got to figure it out. And if you can't figure it out, the math is telling you it doesn't work. You got to cut bait. So at the end of the day, it really does start with financials and understanding a plan and having a plan. But really, it's about how to orchestrate a group of human beings to achieve a goal that everybody can buy into that ultimately achieves a viable business. Whether you call a viable business break-even, you call it $10,000 at the end of the year, $10 million, that really is up to the vision of the founder, owner, operator. But for those of us that are actually trying to invest of ourselves and make it happen, this is a human game, right? I say this in some conversations, we are just people leading people who serve people. And everybody has to be in for a win-win-win scenario because anything short of a win for each of those parties equally or within balance of each other isn't going to create a viable business. So one of my mantras I usually put out in front of our teams is we really only care about the balance of the employee, the guest, and the company finances. And as long as they're in balance, not in equal parts, but in balance for every decision we make, then we're doing fine. So sometimes the decisions we make are going to be heavily weighted towards the guest or heavily weighted towards the employees. They may not be well weighted towards the finances and that's okay. Sometimes we're going to make decisions weighted heavily towards the finances, but we cannot ignore the impact of those decisions on the guest or the employee. So I really do come from the subscription and I had it before, but really appreciated it when I was at Vail Resorts, which is we are really need to invest in our employees, because if we do that, they'll invest and take care of our guests. And if we do that, the finances will take care of themselves. And so I've always believed that in my entire life. My dad believed in that. My dad didn't advertise a day in his life, had three successful different construction companies servicing different sectors of the industry. I grew up working for Procter & Gamble for a stint after business school. All of that mantra is true for all of the most successful businesses I've ever worked with for or led. And when you study others, the big successes, you know, I think it rings true as well. I want you to talk to me about when you first start working with restaurateurs, owners, operators, what does that realization process look like in the first few weeks or months? Yeah. In the first few weeks, it's either a complete sense of relief and they let go very quickly, or they actually tighten the grip pretty early on. Right. And they get nervous and fearful and you know, are they really going to care about my business and drive it the direction I wanted and 
all these kind of things. But it's sort of like the grief path, right? It's like they're going to go through some different stages of letting go. Because when you have worked 13, 15, 17 hours a day, five, six, seven days a week, and you've stressed every day about making payroll, paying the vendors and really operating this thing. And then all of a sudden you realize you actually can take a deep breath and step back. It takes everybody a different path and timeline to get to that moment, but it basically always happens. And if it doesn't, we're actually, we're probably out. You've got to let go. You've got to accept what we're telling you. And that really is the old mantra of it's time for you to work on your business, not in your business. And trust us, we're going to take care of the things in your business so you can, but we actually need you to go do things and focus and learn and make decisions that are going to be helpful to us so that this thing can move forward the way we suggest it does. So it almost always happens and it's different for everybody. We have a process and the way we've built out our program is that is going to happen within a certain time frame. We've kind of built it into the first 90 days. And really it's about building trust, building authority, asking a million questions. One of my mantras I learned from Stephen Covey and the seven habits, which I adopted at 24 years old as a business operating system for myself is seek first to understand, then be understood. So if we spend that first 30 to 45 days only asking questions, only trying to understand how we got where we are, why we do what we do, what we really want it to become, in that becomes this kinship, right? This trust fall, this, ah, these guys really do know what is best for me and my business. It's not formulaic, right? We're not applying one template to all problems. We're really understanding how they got where they are, where they are really, and where they want to go. And yeah, there's a lot of hard, truthful, candid conversations that happen in there. And it's in that, that you build that bond and trust and kinship. And so after that, they realize that there's a new role. And by the way, we're trying to help them help us and help them figure out what that is for them. Right. And it becomes evident when you spend time with somebody over 45 or 60 or 90 days, it becomes really evident what their highest skill level is, what their biggest passion is within the business. What is that spark? What is that impetus that started this whole thing? And it was never money, right? In our business, it was never money. So we figure out what that is and then we help drive them back into that space. And you're right. Once all the noise goes away of the stuff they hate, they don't want to do, they don't understand, they're fearful of dealing with. Once all that's taken off of their plate and there is white space left for them to play with, it's pretty instantaneous spark to see them take off with it, take it and run. Well, you know, and I think that the fear is warranted to layer on context. It's not that most people are afraid to delegate or they're afraid to outsource without cause. I would assume every entrepreneur has done it, right? They've just delegated or outsourced to the wrong person, been slapped in the face for it. It's been a terrible experience. And rather than condemning the person, they condemn the process, right? Right. Right. That was a mistake to delegate. I've period. tried that. That Full doesn't stop, work. Right. Yeah. That doesn't work. Everyone's an idiot. I'm the only one that can run this business effectively, which is fascinating because once I was able to pull myself out, I looked at every hat I wore and said, man, I'm terrible at most of this shit. One, it's not the reason that I started this business. And two, it falls outside of my core competency. Like I, I should not be doing these things. I am not good at these things. And when you're able to 
delegate those things to someone that's truly great at those, to someone who enjoys doing those things in the same way that we enjoy doing the things that we do, you see results. And that brings me to the next topic I wanted to discuss with you, which is the idea between an investment and an expense. I think that most of us in the industry look at coaches, we look at consultants, we look at coursework, we look at educational systems in general as an expense, right? I'm going to work with Troy. It's going to cost me $5,000. And it's not the way to look at it. I wouldn't look at a college education as an expense. It's an investment. It's an investment that should have a return based on the amount of money that we spent. But that to me, if we're looking at the genesis of the hurdle in this great evolution within our industry, it's the inability to identify what is an expense versus what is an investment. Yeah. I mean, you hit the nail right on the head. It's really about the mindset and understanding of what it is you want to get out of that experience, that engagement, that contract, that agreement. And what have you made it abundantly clear? I mean, most of the time, it's interesting that we have to kind of fight tooth and nail to drag the information out. That's why we kind of have our process the way we do is we give ourselves time and space to not only get the information and digest it and turn it around into something that's actionable and understood. But it's fascinating that either it's a fear of sharing or a fear of exposing or a fear of acknowledging that they just don't have it. And that's okay. It's in those gaps that we want. We want to know you don't have that manual, that SOP, that checklist. We want to know that you haven't paid for this vendor or this service that you should be or need or whatever. But yeah, to your point, it has to be viewed as an investment. And in that, make sure you're getting what you need. Like there's a million coaches and consultants and we do what we do the way we do it. We don't really variate off of how and why, because we've proven a system right now. Can we do it all a cart? Can we just focus on one area of the business? Sure. Can we focus on just the educational aspect and not do the actual work because maybe there's some financial constraints or we want to take this one? Sure. But the reality is, is you're going to go from A to Z one way or another, or you're not. And so trust the process, trust the people. And it is a relationship. There is somebody for everybody. And so a thousand consultants, you might find 10 in there that work with you and your mindset and what you're trying to do or have have the skill and competencies to go do that thing that's unique to you. But it is always an investment as long as you've done your homework, your due diligence, and you've been honest. You have to be completely transparent and honest. And we've seen it all. I've seen it all. I've turned around many, many companies. We've managed many, many assets. You're probably not going to surprise me. <laughs> so, so, and I love it. If you do surprise me, great. But, but we're not here to judge you. We're here to solve your problems. And we only can do that if we know where the skeletons are and what the lack of information is or whatever. So, but it has to be viewed as an investment. I'll give you examples. Usually the money's there. It's not the money. You think it's the money, but it's not the money. You're spending the money on the wrong things or the wrong people. If we restructure and reorganize from the ground up a zero base budget, a zero base operational plan, we start from zero dirt ground and we build back up. What would this look like compared to what it is? The money is almost always there. As a matter of fact, We've never been in an engagement where we didn't make or save our client multiple X 
what they spent on us as an investment. The money's there. You're spending it on the wrong people, the wrong things. There's just bad process and system and so, or none, no process or system. And so in the end, you think you're saving money with all the things you're doing that you think you're doing to save money. And reality is when you do the simple math and you look at it over a long period of time on paper, we can pretty much articulate where the money is and how you can reallocate it to further the cause that you want to further, get where you want to go, apply it to the right people and things, and then exponentially you're going to make more money. Sometimes that looks like a short-term hit. Sometimes it looks like an investment, right? Sometimes we're telling you, you've got to spend some money on a few things and that's us and other things, but we will always outline a path of how that ROI comes back in multiples for you. Seeing what was possible and going from good to great, you're going to learn something. Hearing different perspectives from different people in the group have inspired ideas or concepts that I've used since then that there's no way I would have ever come up with on my own. You pull it out of this as much as possible. When the well is dry, you pour a bucket in there and then tell us, now get it out. We could have been just as lost as when we started if all we got was, here's how to do it, go. These folks are independent restaurateurs, just like you, but they have one massive advantage that you don't. They have a proven plan. I'm launching my next restaurant marketing mastermind that brings together 12 owners and operators looking to massively scale revenue by working with me and by working with each other. This mastermind is so effective, we offer a money back guarantee. So if you're interested in scaling your restaurant's revenue with a program that is guaranteed to work, apply today at restaurantmarketingmastermind.com. Again, that's restaurantmarketingmastermind.com. You might think being on the line and filling those tickets is the thing you need to do for your restaurant, but every burger you make is a marketing call or video that you didn't make to drive more sales into your restaurant to make things better. You guys opened a restaurant concept called Sandwich. And I'm curious, one, we'll talk about how it's going, but before we do that, what did you learn by opening it that you didn't already know? What has that experience taught you? Yeah. So sandwich was a test concept that we took several of these under the nourish brands. Initially sandwich was created before nourish was ever even thought of, but sandwich was a pop-up concept that I wanted to prove that the world has two types of sandwiches available to you. It's Jimmy John's, Jersey Mike's, Firehouse Sub, Subway, all of that class of food. And then there's what I love, which is the gastropub experience where you go in and every ingredient was thoroughly thought through and there might only be five ingredients, but a five ingredient sandwich tastes so much better than a 24 ingredient sandwich when you add all the stuff to it. I really believe that the craft gastropub sandwich could be delivered in the QSR model like those others but that the market would accept and pay for something in between on the financial scale, right? So not an 18 to $24 sandwich that you would get in a gastropub, but certainly not the $7.99 sandwich you're going to get at one of the large scale guys that people were going to willing to pay 11 to $15 for a sandwich or a sandwich combo and get much better quality experience, food, cleanliness and healthfulness of the food direct and known sourcing of the ingredients, all of that that goes into making a more quality craft product. And overwhelmingly, in the time pre-pandemic that we did that, we got all the answers we ever needed, and we know it is going to fill a massive gap in the marketplace. During the pandemic, right before the pandemic, and then early parts of the pandemic, we had developed 
uh, group concept. So we had said, okay, we have sandwich. We acquired part of Manja Organica, ultimately merged that into our company. Now we have two concepts. That's an Italian version of sandwich. It's bowls and pastas and quinoa and rice bowls that are more healthful for you. They're authentic to the Southern Italy diet, the Mediterranean diet as we know it. And we said, well, if we put those two together, coincidentally, their logos were both black and white. What what else is out there? What other gaps can we fill? And we just ideated. And so we end up with eight brands that all share this promise and we can house them under one flag called Nourish. The promise of Nourish is that we're going to give you clean, healthy food under these different genres. And you can order all of them just like you would any sort of ghost kitchen, multi-brand experience. You're going to order all of them and satisfy the cravings and needs of your family. So that was the impetus sandwich was the spark that led us down this path ultimately. And so let's talk about Nourish. From a really tactical standpoint, how do you bake in profitability? How do you ensure product market fit? How do you make sure that you're marketing such a broad offering to the right audience? I have like 12 questions. You can start with any one of those. Yeah. So for me, it's always reverse engineer, right? What is the viable number? Where do we have to get to pay for all of the things that let this thing exist. So it's always just a reverse engineer. So we start with a zero-based budget and we literally said, okay, what is the cost? What is the cost? What is the cost? Now you add all the things in there you want to be able to do. You add all the fancy equipment in. You add all the humans that you can ever want and dream of having on your team. You source the most expensive ingredients in the world and then you start pulling back, right? You start balancing, compromising, what we're not going to compromise is the brand promise. So we are going to have all of our ingredients come from within 350 miles of the location, or we won't have a location. That's a non-negotiable. We are going to grow some of our own produce in a vertical farm on site or near at our commissary center. Great. That's non-negotiable. We are going to hire, train, and work with the humans who believe in this mission of providing cleaner, healthier food doesn't mean a salad, and it doesn't mean it can't be convenient and fast, right? We're going to hire evangelical-minded buyers of the vegan, vegetarian, more healthful food world, but that can understand that what we're really trying to do is make that accessible and approachable by everybody, right? So you lay down the fundamentals that are non-negotiable, and then you work the plan to achieve that, but within a financial metric that will allow you to exist. And so, for example, we've built these 50 foot pods, the cost to build one of those is half of a brick and mortar store, right? And so a little bit less than half. And when you add in all your operating costs, it basically comes down to half of the opening cost. The ongoing operation of that is less. The rent of a ground lease is less than in a building. There, The cams are no cams. There's lots of things that fall off. And then that allows you to make more investment in other areas. But would I want to fly something across the world because it's the best ingredient? Yes, but the promise of sustainability in our brand doesn't allow for that because now that's emissions that we're contributing to. And so where can I find the best quality ingredient within 350 miles? Well, in California, super easy, right? In North Dakota, maybe not. So maybe Nourish doesn't exist in North Dakota, or maybe there's a point in 10 or 15 years when self-solar-powered flying drones can bring me food in the sky. And by the way, I don't discount any possibilities because I'm a bit of a futurist. So at the end of the day, you have to reverse engineer to make a viable business. Again, it comes down to like what I said earlier, what is a viable business to you? 
Do I need to net a million dollars per location? Well, that's a very different business design than this thing needs to sustain itself and allow itself to be replicated. And one of our promises is that for a certain number, we haven't found the ratio yet because we're just launching them, but I'm going to guess that one in five nourished locations will be in a food desert minimum. That's my goal. And I would love to have investors ultimately buy into that goal and accelerate that and make that ratio much higher. But I want to open pod kitchens that serve cleaner, healthier food through a variety of genres of cuisine. I want to open those in places where clean, healthy, fresh foods aren't even an option. And so those stores, theoretically, according to economists, may not be viable investments as a standalone business. I disagree with that but we have to hedge and be prepared for them to break even or lose money. I actually think based on our experience with Manjo Organica that you can have a viable, sustainable business that is in areas that other people didn't think were worth investing in. And that's what has created these food deserts and clean, healthy food is not available in a lot of places because people don't think that that population can afford it or would appreciate and pay for it and pay what they need to pay to make it viable. I disagree with that thesis and I want to prove and join the movement that you see some others, every table and some of these other groups start to show is not true, that that there is enough business there to make it a worthwhile endeavor. But I don't care. I would rather 20% of our locations be losses and realize that the other 80% can pay for it. And then we're using it as a platform for education. Look, we can do STEM training. We can do vocational culinary training. We can do nutritional education. We can do home gardening, vertical farming, all of the things that come with a restaurant and a vertical farm. We can use that as a platform for education and uplifting a community, no matter where it is. And we plan that really to be the core piece of our mission. Well, and the only way to execute that mission or any mission really is profitability, which is one of the last big topics I want to talk to you about because profit is a dirty word in our industry. Most owners, operators, especially small independents, myself included, I felt shame for making a profit or for making too high of a profit. It seems like every other industry gets to make money, but not us. It's not allowed. And I think that a lot of that comes from having a servant's heart, right? And wanting to be of service to the highest caliber. But I think that there's a needle there to thread between wanting to maximize the impact that we have as business owners and making enough money to be able to do that. For 20% of your locations to not be profitable, that means that the other 80% have to be highly profitable to offset that. Yeah, I mean, correct. I don't know where this mindset comes from. I think that it just comes from most independent startup restaurants are not started by MBA finance people, right? They're people that have a vision or a mission or a product that, like you said, is either from a service-based, I love doing it, I love seeing people enjoy my food, or I think I have the best sauce or recipe for X, and I think that's a viable business. And viability is really about self-sustainability. Does it really, at the end of the day, most restaurateurs just care about paying for their own life expenses. And if they can meet that need, they're happy for the experience of being a restaurateur as a lifestyle, right? But as the pandemic and the crisis of 2008 to 2010 have proven is that that's not 
a business model that's sustainable in fluctuations of economies. And if you're not making enough, not only to pay your own life expenses, but also to have a rainy day fund and a capital expenditure fund, most of these restaurants aren't making enough barely to stay open, yet they also aren't putting money into investing in repairs and equipment fund, right? And so when that thing goes down, when the 20-year-old walk-in dies, that $18,000 compressor or blower unit, now they're borrowing money from the bank or they're borrowing money from friends and family. So you need profit, not just to sustain and uplift your lifestyle personally as the owner, you need profit to have these rainy day funds and capital expenditure investment funds and improve your employee benefits. You know, most don't offer benefits unless they're forced to by the state and what they do, they do at the most bare minimum. If you made profit, maybe you would choose to put some more into programs and benefits and packages and things for your staff or your family. I know tons of restaurant operators walking around in their 50s and 60s with no health insurance. Why? Because they've invested in making sure their staff gets health insurance over them. Well, in a crisis of health for yourself, who's going to be there for your staff to support that business? So you really have to step back and look at this, as we've said, globally and make a sustainable formula out of surviving. And then what above that survival? Well, what about your 401k? What about retirement? If you're leaning on the expectation that you're going to be able to sell this restaurant and that's going to fund your retirement, that's a really bad investment strategy that 99.9% of wealth managers would tell you is not a sustainable or likely scenario to play out. So yeah, some people can sell restaurants for millions of dollars, but it's a funky market. It's a hard resale space. It's not worth what you think it's worth. So you need to destigmatize the idea of making money is a bad thing. We all need to do it. Quite a few people out there in the space yelling it pretty loudly. I appreciate you bringing it up. There is no number that's egregious because if your customer is satisfied with the product value for the price offered and the higher that value proposition is deemed to be to them, then you should have no guilt that they're happy to pay it. And if you're paying your staff and your staff is well cared for and treated well, and well-paid, whatever is left, there's plenty to do with that. And you've built that business. You deserve that benefit ultimately. And then to close the circle, as someone that's consulted for dozens of businesses, opens several successful restaurant concepts yourself, what is a function of profitability? If someone has a break-even restaurant or their restaurant is losing a little bit of money, where should they turn their attention? in order to increase profitability? It's always both ends of the spectrum. Sales solves all problems because at some point sales can outpace costs, right? So that is one end of the spectrum. Sell more, charge more, and then it is always in the costs. I mean, I've never walked into a restaurant where there wasn't 5% sitting on the table. It's on the floor. Like there's 15% sitting in the walk-in, right? It's just proper management you know, buying to the selling expectation, controlling of waste, labor waste. There's just so much there. So on the cost side, there's always a healthy percentage. I tell people it's never been less than three. I don't think it's ever actually been less than 5% in cost. And there's always things that can be done in refining, revising, paring back your menu, revitalizing your brand story, 
marketing's free in some respects. I pay a lot of money for marketing for restaurants, for the marketing they need, but there's a lot of free marketing. TikTok is an amazing platform today, tomorrow to be something else, but there's always opportunities to get your message out. So it's not a one silver bullet. It's both ends of the spectrum that meet in the middle. You have to improve overall sales and awareness and interest, and you have to meet the need, not meet your ego. And on the cost, you have to really understand what you're spending, where, on what, for what reason. And I do find that most, most people we work with or even talk to, it is the lack of understanding of the financials themselves, the process, the systems in inventory management, in purchasing management, in labor management. It's just a lack of understanding. And like I said earlier, it's because most people aren't MBAs. You know, most people didn't go to business school. Could I pass an MBA program today? I don't know, probably, but it's not my core strength 20 years ago. I had to learn this over 25, 30 years of being in the business. So you're not going to master that overnight. So get the help you need. And whether that's a better bookkeeper, a better accountant, or a CFO advisor, there's lots of fractional CFOs that will do educational courses and programs with you, will evaluate as part of our core. It's where we start. If you don't send me a PL, it's very hard to help you. So it really is a lack of understanding and education and deep understanding of your financials. And it's usually a lack of understanding and therefore fear to spend appropriately on marketing. It's really just about getting this down to the core essence of what it is you're trying to do, having a reason for doing it, and then having a process for executing it. The restaurant industry is filled with these unspoken rules and traditions about how things should be done. How would you like to see our industry turn the tables to create a better future for all of us? I think we have to continue to pare it back, to really uh, distill and concentrate to the essence of what we're trying to do. I think you've seen a lot of limited time offers to call them LTOs in the industry really come back to very infrequent but purposeful. There's a reason behind it or there's a method or a system. There's something there to it. They created it for a reason. It doesn't have to be a menu item. So I really want to see people take adopt what I've proven can be done. If you focus on the people first and focus on giving them what they need to take care of your people, the guests, and you give the guests what they say they want, where, when, and how they want it, remove all points of friction, don't have an ego about how when, where, and what people want, ask them, actually engage your consumers, understand your consumer avatar and demographic, and learn and understand or hire to get help on the financials. It's the win-win-win scenario. Your people, their people, the customer, and understanding and managing the financial capabilities ultimately will give you the strength, give you the core strength to then try and test and have room to fail. So I really think what's going to happen in our industry is the mediocre middle is going to die. The folks that aren't going to pick their head up, look around and engage the community and the industry that aren't going to take the lessons and learnings of other financial crises, recessions, inflationary periods, consumer changing behavior. Those folks are not going to survive. And we're going to see this move in one direction towards convenience and in another direction towards entertainment, entertainment, as we know. And those are going to be the extreme convenience and extreme experiential. And then there's going to be some scale on both sides towards the middle. 
But I think there's a big black dark hole in the middle of our industry for folks that just aren't going to evolve. And that is the nature, right? Things do expand and they do contract. We're going to have a big correction in the restaurant market for what people are going to be willing to pay for, especially as costs go higher. They're going to be more thoughtful and about where they go for their food and experiences. And if you're not meeting that need or you're struggling because of your staffing issues or you're struggling because you don't understand the finances and how to cut costs and how to negotiate contracts, you know, you're going to have a tough time, I think, surviving the next couple of years. That's Troy Hooper. For more information on Troy's company, visit krpusa.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Copel. You've been listening to Full Comp.